From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Legal sales of recreational marijuana began 10 years ago in Colorado, a trailblazer. In the decade since, cannabis has gone from counterculture to corporate. Fast forward 10 years and you have almost half the country with some form of recreational legalization. Almost the entire country has some form of medical CBD has swept the country as well, and it's a vastly different landscape. Then, a cold case in more ways than one, the mysterious death 50 years ago of a Denver mountaineer whose camera, film still inside, later emerged from a glacier. I'm thrilled Janet's photos exist. It's kind of ghostly to think these are the last things that she saw, and only she saw, and now countless people can appreciate them. You can donate most vehicles to Colorado Public Radio, including cars, trucks, and motorcycles. And you can donate them in any condition, on one condition. The title has to be in your name. You'll also have to answer a few simple questions like, Where is your car? And when would you like us to pick it up? Simple work to make a big impact. Start the donation process now on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. It's official. The U.S. Supreme Court will have the final say on whether former President Donald Trump is eligible to run for president again. And a Colorado case put this question in the justices' laps. Here to talk about what happens next or what may happen next, she has no crystal ball, is CPR Public Affairs Editor Megan Verlee. Hi, Megan. Hi, Ryan. As your team has reported, Colorado's Supreme Court disqualified Trump from the state's Republican primary ballot, finding that he violated the so-called insurrection clause of the 14th Amendment. On Friday, the U.S. Supreme Court announced it would hear an appeal. Can you sketch out what questions they'll face? Oh, a lot of questions. I mean, there are a lot of ways that this case could go. Uh, A reminder, this is part of the Constitution that says that someone who swore an oath to protect the Constitution and then goes on to commit insurrection cannot hold elected office again. That's specifically what it goes to. And the problem is that's kind of all it says. It's sort of passive voice. It doesn't have a lot of details. And the U.S. Supreme Court has never actually weighed in on this provision before. So there are just a ton of outstanding legal questions questions about how it can be used. Yeah, like what? Well, well, uh, like what counts as an insurrection? Uh, can a short-lived disruption of government, which is January, what January 6th was and is sort of the event that a lot of this case hinges on, would that qualify as an insurrection? Or does it have to be something really major and sustained like the U.S. Civil War? And this part of the Constitution, the 14th Amendment, was adopted after the Civil War. That's it, why you invoke that. Exactly. And Trump's lawyers definitely want the court to think about that context and to think about what uh, the folks who ratified this provision really intended and whether that would uh, would cover January 6th. Uh, And there are other questions the section leaves out, like how do you know someone has committed insurrection? Do they need to be convicted of a crime or does Congress need to say this thing was an insurrection, which it has not done for January 6th? And then there's a question of who gets to decide this. Uh, In Colorado, the courts have concluded that they have the power to apply this part of the 14th Amendment. Trump's side argues that it should be up to Congress uh, when it comes to federal elections to say that someone is disqualified. Okay, so the justices could say this isn't actually ours to answer and we want to 
put that on the record. Uh, virtually no legal precedent, I guess, for any of these questions. Precious little. I mean, this clause was barely used after the U.S. Civil War. Uh, there was pretty quickly a blanket amnesty for Confederates. And then it has only been invoked a few times until this post-Trump era. So it's been gathering dust. You, are, you know, the court hasn't stepped out and said anything about it. What is the timeline here? Because the, the clock really is ticking. It is. Uh, So Friday, the day they agreed to hear the case, was the same day that Colorado's Secretary of State had to certify the ballot for the Republican presidential primary on March 5th. Uh, There are still a few weeks before those ballots go to the printers, but both sides in the case are asking the court to move at essentially warp speed for the justices uh, so that Colorado voters can have some certainty before they return those ballots. And because of this condensed timeline, Trump's name is on the ballot here, right, even though Colorado Supreme Court disqualified him. Exactly. In their ruling, they kind of added a a just-to-be-safe stay, which said if this case is still alive when the ballot's certified, when the ballots are printed, then his name goes on it. And it will be pending the outcome at the U.S. Supreme Court whether the votes for him, if people see him on their ballot and cast a vote for him, whether those votes will be counted. Does this case mean the Supreme Court will have to decide if Trump is allowed to hold office under the 14th Amendment and basically weigh in on these big questions around January 6th and his alleged culpability? I I don't think so. I mean, not a law professor here, but I've been reading a lot of and listening to a lot of really smart people on this. They could weigh those sort of uh, factual questions, which is what the Colorado Supreme Court opted to do. Um, But you know, I gave you that whole list of open questions. They could uh, answer some of them in a way that leaves Trump on the ballot without really judging his specific behavior. Just one point of clarity. Uh, Trump's name for now is on the ballot. If it remains there and a deadline passes and for some reason he's disqualified, what, what does that mean if his name's still there? So as our Secretary of State, Jenna Griswold, pointed out, It's not unheard of that a candidate would be printed on the ballot and drop out of a race or for some other reason not actually end up being a viable candidate at the point that the election occurs. When that happens, votes for them are just set aside. So there are... I knew this on Friday. I don't know it this morning. Seven or eight other Republican names on the primary ballot in Colorado. Uh, And so any votes for Trump would be set aside if he was disqualified. And Vivek Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley and Chris Christie and everybody else on there, their votes would be counted. Okay. Before we let you go, Megan, I want to note that this week has plenty of other political goings on in the state. The legislature convenes on Wednesday. Governor Jared Polis gives his State of the State address Thursday. What are you watching for, just briefly? The next time I can actually have a full night's sleep, (laughs) probably. (laughs) No, I know you're talking to public affairs reporter Benta Berklin on Wednesday, and she is going to be much smarter on this than I am. But I think one thing we're really watching for at the legislature is kind of just the tone coming back. Uh, There was a lot of division, particularly in the House Democratic Caucus, uh, going all the way back to last year's session. There have been tensions between lawmakers around the war in Gaza. We're going to be watching to see how these lawmakers, when they have to come together in one room and work together again, how those things play out. And then for the state of the state, I think we're going to be watching to see how ambitious Polis uh, will be with his agenda this year. Last year was tough for him. His big legislative priority flamed out. His big uh, ballot referendum, voters rejected very strongly. So what is he going to come back and say he wants to get done this year? Megan, thank you so much. Thank you, Ryan. CPR Public Affairs Editor Megan Verlee. 
The former Aurora police officer convicted in the 2019 death of Elijah McLean was sentenced Friday to 14 months in jail and four years probation. A jury had found Randy Rodima guilty of criminally negligent homicide and third-degree assault. He'll be eligible for work release, but can no longer be a cop in Colorado. Rodima addressed the court just before sentencing. Here's some of what he said. I want to begin by expressing my deepest condolences to the McLean family for your loss of Elijah. I cannot imagine the agony they must feel on a day-to-day basis. I know that I would be devastated if I lost any of my children, and I hate that the McLean family has to go through this. At the same time, I do not think there is anything that I can say that will make this okay. In fact, I know I don't. However, I want the McLean family to know the sadness I feel about Elijah being gone. He was young. And while many people say that time heals, I know that time is not capable of filling the hole that is in their hearts and in their lives. I think the only thing time can offer at this point is perspective. Time can allow us the ability to process, think, pray, and do our best to understand how to live with this painful experience. Elijah McLean's mother, Shanine, also addressed the court. Here's an excerpt. My son, Elijah McLean, was a healthy young man the night Randy Rodema chose to show my son the power and privileges of the boys in blue. Peace officers are not, I said peace officers are not supposed to be murderers, but that is what Randy Rodema became the night he bullied my son to death. If an individual is trained to view others based on their race, or if an individual is trained to be a brutal machine of force, that individual becomes incapable of showing kindness to people of diversity in communities everywhere. At what point in time does that individual choose his own humanity instead of the inhuman protocols of his training? Randy Rodema stole my son's life away, and in the eyes of my God and human laws everywhere, theft is a crime. All the achievements in the world becomes a person's past once that person changes into a monster. Our communities cannot know peace until we see the justice departments hold their own enforcers accountable. My son will never be a dad, an uncle, or a grandfather. Randy Rodema stole my son's life. All the belated apologies in the world cannot remove my son's blood from Randy's hands. Shanine McLean asked for the maximum sentence, three years in prison. After Rodema was given 14 months, she told reporters justice had not been served. This is the same story happening over and over again. And more lives are getting lost because nobody is doing the right thing. In total, three Aurora police officers stood trial in connection with Elijah McLean's death. Rodima was the only one convicted, and that was on lesser charges. Two paramedics were also convicted in the case. They will be sentenced March 1st. Colorado became the first state where you could buy recreational marijuana legally. That was 10 years ago this month. And in the decades since, cannabis has gone from counterculture to big business. Here's CPR's Ben Marcus. New Year's Day 2014. 
Dozens of journalists crowded into a dispensary in Denver to witness the first sale. There were too many cameras for the small space, so the store owner had a plan. Okay, so we're going to run through the sale one more time for those of you that uh, could not get the pictures previously. So the first sale was actually done twice. I think there was like almost like a physical altercation between a couple of ca- guys holding cameras. I won't name any names. That's Christian Cedarberg, who was on the campaign to legalize cannabis. Across Denver at Colorado Harvest Company, the line was long all day. Tim Cullen, the owner, said he heard some people grumbling, and an older customer interrupted them. And he turns around and he says, hey, man, I don't care if we wait three hours. I have been waiting for 62 years for this to happen. And here it is. Since that day, customers have purchased about $12 billion in marijuana in Colorado. Taxes, those sales generated, have gone to school construction and building rec centers. Marijuana possession arrests dropped 71%. And legalization has won over some early critics, like then-Governor John Hickenlooper. I was worried about the, the downsides that were widely predicted by experts, that this would lead to a dramatic increase in and experimentation and consumption and frequency uh, by young people. In fact, youth marijuana use has declined since legalization. Still, kids in Colorado use more than their peers across the U.S. And anti-cannabis advocates, they remain worried about high-potency marijuana and candy flavors. But it's hard to imagine going back. Again, store owner Tim Cullen. You know, fast forward 10 years and you have almost half the country with some form of recreational legalization. Almost the entire country has some form of medical. CBD has swept the country as well. I mean, it's a vastly different landscape than where we were 10 years ago. And Colin says the sky did not fall, as some had predicted. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. And Ben joins us now with some further reflections on legal recreational cannabis in Colorado 10 years on. Hi, Ben. Good morning. So as we just heard about, $12 billion worth of recreational weeds been sold here in the last decade. Uh, But the industry has fallen on hard times more recently, hasn't it? Yeah, if you look at sales on a graph over the last 10 years, it looks like this jagged mountain. And sales rise steadily for years and years and years. And then starts to slow down a little bit before the pandemic. Then the pandemic hits. People aren't working. They're not going into the office anymore. Sales just explode. It becomes huge. Lines out the door. Investment floods into the industry. New businesses are started. New grows. And then vaccines come out, people go back to work, weed sales fall again. And so the industry is really in its first sustained downturn. It's on the downslope of that jagged mountain now. Interesting. What does that downturn look like for the industry? Well, in some cases, it means businesses going out of business. So I had the opportunity to look kind of detailed background in a particular grow operation in southern Colorado. This guy was being sued by an investor from out of state in state court. He was suing another company for not paying him. And so in short, it's kind of a mess as the price of cannabis drops. That means you've got all this product that isn't worth what it once was. And you have businesses that are suffering, but they don't have access to bankruptcy protections because of the federal illegality of cannabis right now. I will say, though, quickly that there are many well-established 
uh, cannabis businesses in Denver and other places. If you're in a good location, you're a well-run business, you're doing just fine. But that downturn is starting to hurt some of those marginal businesses. Yeah, I pictured an economic chain reaction. And 10 years in, you, you've hinted at this, the federal issue is still unsolved. It's kind of amazing. It's pretty much the same it was 10 years ago. Yeah. Marijuana is still federally illegal. There's talk of rescheduling it. So the DEA has it in a category of the most dangerous drugs, uh, which I'm not a scientist, but I'm pretty sure it's not the same as heroin. Uh, but because it's in that category, it, you have you can't get tax breaks if you're a business from the IRS. Um, you have to deal in cash for financing. Many businesses have bank accounts to do regular transactions, but they don't have access to the full financial system. And that's partly why you don't see more consolidation in the industry. There isn't enough investment money in the industry for somebody to buy up a bunch of these dispensaries and put them together under one big brand name like Philip Morris or something. So instead, you still have a ton of non uh, a mom and pop uh, businesses out there. Many I talk to say they want to sell and get out of the industry maybe, mm. but there isn't the capital there uh, because of this federal illegality uh, to get out. So some people feel stuck. And if you're a consumer and you walk into a business, sometimes you'll be told, hey, the visa cards aren't working today. And so that federal illegality means that credit cards have been kind of a weird thing. Uh, all businesses have some kind of ATM machine, so you can still get your money out and buy your cannabis. Um, but it adds to this just kind of like not fully legitimate industry. Oh. You've mentioned the DEA, Drug Enforcement Administration. Critics remain concerned about the impact of marijuana on kids. What do we know 10 years after the first recreational sales? This is fascinating to me. So uh, youth use of marijuana rises until legalization of recreational cannabis, and then it falls. Uh, and it falls pretty sharply, and it's been fairly consistent, if growing a little bit over the years. And why is that? Uh, businesses tell me that the if you sell to a minor, you put your license in jeopardy. And these licenses are so valuable because a lot of cities have caps now That's on right. new businesses. And so if you lose that license, you could lose everything. And so it's just not worth selling to a minor with so much at stake. They also say that the uh, enforcement authorities are constantly sending in undercover people. One dispensary told me that it's once a month that there's an undercover person who comes in to try to buy cannabis under age. How do they, how do they know? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> they kick them out or what. Mm -hmm. um, but that really tight control on who can buy. And then there's like squishier theories like, well, if your parents and grandparents can buy it, is it really cool anymore? Is it something that you want to use? Mm. And are kids is interested or worried about drugs and alcohol use? Uh, that kind of stuff is is not well studied. Um, but what is clear from multiple surveys is that youth use did decline from legalization to today. How does it compare to like the rest of the country? And I know there are concerns about the, the strength of marijuana. That's right. So... Um, Colorado kids still use cannabis at significantly higher rates than other kids in other states, okay. just national average wise. 
Um, and so advocates, when they are talking about the dangers of marijuana, it's almost always focused on kids. It's almost always focused on high potency products, 80% and up THC. Much of the flour you would buy on the traditional market is like 20 and 30%. So some of these products are things that people didn't even really imagine when they voted to legalize cannabis 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Ben Marcus joins us 10 years after Colorado legalized recreational marijuana and those sales began. There have been some profound changes to the criminal justice system in that time, thanks to legalization, right? Yeah, I mean, it just makes sense. If you legalize it, you're going to have fewer arrests. Uh, the state did a report and they found that marijuana possession arrests fell 70 percent from 2014 to 2019. The report noted, though, that people of color still make up a disproportionate number of arrestees. And the report said specifically that has not changed. Mm. So you can still be arrested if you have more than the amount of cannabis you're supposed to have by law, or you can be arrested if you're a juvenile. 21 and over is who is allowed to have this unless you have a medical card and there's some um, wiggle room there. But so the the rate of cannabis possession offenses for people under 21 only is down 1%. So they're still arresting kids who are in possession of cannabis, and that tends to affect black and brown kids more than it does white. Some disproportionality. Before we go, let's talk taxes, which are a large percentage of a cannabis purchase in Colorado. Ben, has that revenue made a difference? And by the way, this is a question we get into the newsroom from listeners almost, it seems like every day. Yeah, if I had to add it up, it'd probably be the most frequently asked question over the last 10 years. I think there was an impression among voters that this would solve education funding. Now, uh, it doesn't make a huge impact. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars a year versus billions in state spending, billions in education spending. So while a little bit of money can go to a school district in the San Luis Valley to build a new building, that has a huge impact on that district. It doesn't change the overall trajectory of school funding or the budgets in Colorado. The dollars just aren't big enough. Even though the tax rate on a purchase of cannabis is 30% plus, it's still a small enough market that it's just not having that huge of an impact Mm. on the bottom line. Can you speak to what it means locally? I mean, for for Denver, it's a new rec center. Uh, it's uh, new schools, new school buildings. Mm-hmm. It's uh, nurses in schools. Uh, all those things matter. Um, it's just not the panacea that many people believe. I don't think the campaign meant to say that it would solve everything, uh, and it has not. Thanks so much, Ben. Thank you. CPR's Ben Marcus, as Colorado marks 10 years of legalized recreational marijuana, the first state in the nation with sales. In about a year, psilocybin mushrooms will be legally distributed in healing centers in Colorado, and the state will soon issue licenses for their distribution. Here's CPR's Elaine Tassie. The state's new division of natural medicine is charged with overseeing the fledgling psilocybin industry. It got more than half a million dollars from the state to get the division on its feet. In addition to borrowing a few staffers from the state's Marijuana Enforcement Division... We're in the process of hiring our first position. That's Dominique Mendiola, Senior Director for both the Marijuana Enforcement Division and the Natural Medicine Division. 
One of the main things they'll do is provide licensing to healing centers where providers will administer psilocybin and other Schedule One substances to people over 21. We're also going to be similar to what we do in cannabis is licensing and regulating cultivations for natural medicine. Prop 122, which Coloradans approved in November of 2022, creates a regulatory framework through which people can receive natural medicine services in healing centers. After regulations passed the state legislature, regulators got to work. We immediately began that implementation work. Oregon is the only other state that has a similar office. It focuses on psilocybin only, whereas the one in Colorado will eventually regulate psilocin, another ingredient in magic mushrooms, as well as other plant-based psychoactives. Her team will also be involved in data collection, promotion, and training. That includes data collection around law enforcement incidents, adverse health events, consumer protection claims, things like that. We're also going to be responsible for developing public education materials, um, as well as training materials for first responders like law enforcement or EMS. Healing centers will be places where people can receive the natural medicine on site under the supervision of providers. Allison Robinette, also with the New State Division, says it will likely take a bit before people can go to a healing center. Someone who was looking for that experience in a regulated space will wait essentially till 2025 once we have licenses issued and licensees are operating. I'm Elaine Tassi, CPR News. We'll be right back with Ghosts on a Glacier. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. If you want to name a mountain in Colorado, where do you start? What does Denver sometimes smell like dog food? Is there actually a spring in Colorado Springs? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the CPR Newsroom. And we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders and help us all discover more about our state of wonders. Made possible in part by the Colorado Health Foundation. It is a cold case in several ways. Janet Johnson, a Denver teacher, dies atop a frozen peak called Aconcagua, on the border between Chile and Argentina. A fellow climber is also dead. Their bodies must be chiseled out of the ice for burial. This was in 1973, and ever since, people have wondered, was this an accident or murder? Then in 2020, a melting glacier gave up a clue. The teacher's camera carrying the last photographs she took. Since the reveal, New York Times reporter John Branch has been investigating, and his recent story is titled Ghosts on the Glacier. John, welcome. Glad to be here. Tell us more about Janet Johnson, first off. Yeah, so Janet Johnson was a woman from Denver. She actually grew up in Minneapolis, um, but moved to Denver in her 20s and got a doctorate from CU in education. She had a, a long love affair with the outdoors. And so through most of the 60s, she was an active member of the Colorado Mountain Club. She was, I think, the 82nd person to have climbed all of the 14ers in Colorado. I think only the 17th or 18th woman huh. started to climb more and more internationally. And so she, um, in some ways, is a pioneer in her own right. She was also gay and closeted. And her sister, who survives her and lives in Oregon, is in her 80s now believes that what propelled Janet to the mountains and to go get her doctorate was to prove to her mother that she could do these things even as a gay woman. 
I realize I'm just kind of leaning into this fact, John. We're going to jump all around in this interview. So let's fast forward. How is it that her camera is unearthed on Aconcagua after 50 years? I think the short answer is climate change. She and John Cooper, the other person who died that was part of that expedition back in 1973, both died on the Polish glacier near the top of Aconcagua. And she, at some point, lost her camera. And so 50 years later, the receding Polish glacier is now revealing some things, including this 50-year-old camera that had a name on the bottom. And that name, as you mentioned, was Janet Johnson with her address on it on York Street. Yeah. And so a journalist and photographer who works on Aconcagua during the climbing season reached out to me. And uh, he told me that this camera had been found and it had Janet Johnson's name. And you poke around a little bit and you can kind of go into the rabbit holes, especially as it persists in Argentina, where Janet Johnson's name evokes this kind of folklore or ghost story because nobody down there really knows exactly what happened to her and John Cooper. And it's uh, been part of lore, climbing lore down there for, for now five decades. You write about the discovery of the camera, quoting here, that it stirred more intrigue, leaving more questions than answers. That's the imbalance of all the best mysteries, facts that don't quite add up, gaps that imaginations rush to fill. Why did you want to tell this story? Was it to give the rest of the world that same sense of the mystery that is so uh, strong within Argentina? I think part of it is just the reporter's desire to try to separate fact from fiction. And a lot of fiction had been applied to this story. Mm. And then secondly, it's an issue of humanity. You know, for 50 years, Janet Johnson's name is basically a character in somebody else's myth. And I thought, if we have her camera and we can follow her path, now's the opportunity to give some humanity to her. And think about it, there are two families, in Janet's family and John Cooper's family, who lost loved ones. You know, John Cooper was married and had a young boy, a toddler at the time. For 50 years, these people have wondered what happened to their loved ones and have lived lives without their loved ones. And, you know, the least we could do is try to tell them what happened and try to give life to these people who lost their lives 50 years ago. Indeed, I'll ask you more about their families, and I will have you describe the images that were in this camera, but I said we were going to jump around. Prior to Aconcagua, which is almost 23,000 feet high, Janet Johnson hadn't just climbed in Colorado. She had summited some of the world's toughest mountains. What did she bring to the expedition? You know, the, the tricky thing with this is that none of these people knew each other really well. I don't know exactly what they saw in Janet Johnson other than she, if you look at her resume, had a stronger resume, I think, than anybody else in the expedition. Ah. So I think it really was, we need another person who's around that might be interested. And she was honored. I mean, according to her family, she was honored to be part of this thing. You know, I don't think they were looking to break any barriers by having a woman or anything like that. They just asked around in the small climbing community of the early 1970s and found, here's an accomplished woman who was interested in coming. This notion that the group did not really uh, know each other very well, that begins to be clear as soon as they meet up in Mendoza, Argentina, because others who encountered them have doubts right off the bat about their cohesion, their skill, their experience, etc., that's totally true. I think the people in Argentina respect the Andes, respect Aconcagua. And when the Americans arrived, they got attention immediately because, one, they were Americans at a time when there weren't a lot of people coming to Aconcagua. You know, it's not like it is today. One, there was a NASA engineer in John Cooper. There's a woman. 
And they wanted to climb the Polish Glacier Route, which was a more technical, difficult route that had only been done, I believe, five times up to that point. And so they got attention from the get-go. And the reporter named Rafael Moran, he goes and meets the Americans at the hotel in Mendoza. And his immediate reaction is, these people don't know what they're getting into. They seem to be underestimating what Aconcagua is, what the Andes are. They've never been at an elevation this high. And also, he got a sense that they didn't know each other very well and didn't seem to get along very well. There was a strange vibe, uh, just kind of a spidey sense that he had. And so he turns to his photographer that was working with him that day and says, hey, take their picture. I want pictures of each one of them because I have a feeling they're not all coming back. And that premonition was correct because about two weeks later, those photos then ran in all the newspapers after the uh, expedition had gone south. New York Times reporter John Branch is our guest. He spent several years investigating the puzzling deaths of Denver teacher Janet Johnson and NASA engineer John Cooper on Aconcagua, the 23,000-foot peak in South America. Branch's story is titled Ghosts on the Glacier. What do you think this group did wrong? Other than maybe underestimating what they were getting into, what they did wrong was just a a case of bad decision-making. When they get up on the mountain, there's eight Americans, there's a guide who's from Argentina, and there's a base camp manager who's from Argentina. So there's 10 people total. And this mountain at the time really has no other infrastructure. It's not like today with base camps and Wi-Fi and hot showers and medical (laughs) facilities and so on. They're up there by themselves, not even satellite phones or GPS or things like that. And they, one at a time, start running into problems with altitude sickness. And pretty soon, people are dropping off and returning back to base camp. Well, in most expeditions, you would say after a person, if one person falls back, we're all going to fall back. Mm. The rest of them just kept going until eventually there's only four of them with no guide who decide today is the day we're going to go up and and try to reach the summit. That's when things really, really went bad was once the expedition had fractured and was really leaderless. There were four members, including Janet Johnson, who decided Hey, even though everybody else is back at base camp, we're going to see if we can make the summit. One thing your piece does really well is explain how bad decision-making gets worse in those conditions. I mean, really, altitude plays tricks with your mind, I suppose, fundamentally, by playing tricks with your breath. Yeah, I mean, very much so. I mean, there are case studies about bad decision-making in the mountains and how the lack of oxygen and other effects of high altitude will ruin any chance of good decision making. These people were at base camp, which is 15,500 feet, right? So you're already higher than anywhere in Colorado. Yeah. And then each camp above that, getting up close to the summit at 23,000 feet. And they are up there for a lot of days. They don't have supplemental oxygen. And throughout those days, in the last part of it, they're now having hallucinations. They are seeing things like construction equipment at the summit, trucks moving around, which obviously weren't there. Mm. They're seeing people and hearing voices that were not there. One of the two people who were the last to see John Cooper and Janet Johnson alive described seeing mules because they use mules down to get to base camp, but the mules are nowhere up high on the mountain, but he saw mules and including dead mules. These are the witnesses basically who are now coming down the mountain at some point to tell the story about what happened. And certainly there were questions about whether they were qualified witnesses, even though they were the only witnesses. You have diaries as well that help flesh out this story, although to the extent those can be trusted at altitude is a question. There seems to be a general sense about Janet Johnson. 
from the group? She rubbed people the wrong way, it seems like, from the beginning. It's hard to know exactly why that was, if it was just basic sexism. In the diaries that I've been able to read from a couple of the members there, they describe her looks. They don't think she's very pretty. They think she's very manly. One of them says, yeah, I expected when I met her that she'd walk up and slap me on the back. And they thought she was weird. I mean, they use that word weird. One of the one of the myths that built up around this is that she went skinny dipping at night at the hotel pool in Mendoza. And I went and talked to a housekeeper who said, yes, I was there that next morning. And that was the buzz. Well, you look in John Cooper's diary and he mentions her swimming in the afternoon in her bra and panties in front of a lot of people. It struck her own expedition members as a bit odd, but also part of the myth around her built up. And I think it's just a remembrance of how easily it is to take one factoid and then push it forward into a little bit of fiction. You know, there was also a sense that she was really out for herself on this expedition. Part of this is potentially revisionist. Um, when the expedition came back and the write-ups were made, including by Carmi Defoe, who led the expedition, his full accounting of the expedition said that other members had said that she was desperate to get to the summit. And they did a little bit of victim blaming for both Janet Johnson and John Cooper by suggesting that maybe summit fever was, in some extent, what led to their death. Mm. But again, it's so fascinating because the lore is shaped by the survivors, you know. So she, Janet Johnson, and John Cooper died on the mountain. What do we know for sure about their deaths? It's hard to know anything for sure because we know that memories are not infallible. But the facts suggest this, that four of them went out the Polish glacier to try to reach the summit. They spent the night on the glacier because their progress was so slow. The next morning, one of them, John Cooper, decided to come back down by himself. The other three then continue on up to the summit. And they end up spending another night without oxygen at now close to 22,000 feet. And then try to make their way back down. And this is when all the hallucinations are happening. This is when they're taking falls on the glacier. And at some point, they eventually get down to Camp 3. The two men who survived through this found John Cooper's body on the glacier and left Janet Johnston not a long distance from camp, but insisting that she said, go on ahead, I'll be right behind you. And they left her there. And the next morning, after they fell asleep in camp, they get up, and instead of going back up the glacier to go see, double check on John Cooper or to see if they can find Janet Johnson, they go downhill. Almost immediately, both the police and the judicial system assigned a judge and an investigator to the case and said, we have to be able to rule out foul play. And they decided they could not rule out anything based on the witness accounts unless they had bodies. And that began then a long search that ended up taking about three years to find the bodies of John Cooper and, and Janet Johnson. It's a bit graphic, but you write about what happens to bodies at that altitude in that environment. Yeah. So John Cooper's body was found about six months later. An expedition was sent of members of the police to go find these bodies. And they do find John Cooper's near the bottom of the glacier on pretty shallow slopes. And unlike what people assumed, he must have just frozen to death or had some sort of high altitude illnesses. His cause of death was blows to the head, was damage to the brain, which were somewhat explained and people believed it could be explained by maybe he just took a lot of falls as he came down the glacier by himself but it 
added more mystery to a lot of people in Argentina saying, well, wait, he didn't just freeze to death like the expedition members had suggested before they left Argentina. Mm-hmm. What could have happened? We need to find Janet Johnson's body. And that's exactly what both the judge and the embassy said. And that took two more years. And what is the state of it when they find it? What does it offer in terms of clues? Well, interesting, her body's not far from John Cooper's. Again, in a shallow area, she's missing a cramp on. She has ropes tied around her waist loosely, and she has three major blows to her face where you can see the bone. Some suggest that maybe she, like John Cooper, fell as she came down the glacier, and when the autopsy was done, that was the cause of death, was blows to the head again. Could they have died the same way? Is the autopsy for some reason wrong? We don't really know. But the men who found her body... They were certain they had seen a murder scene, and two of the men who have since passed went to their grave believing that this was a murder scene, and they told reporters that in Argentina, another example of igniting the story, putting a lot of conjecture into what possibly happened. Most of this news never made it to the United States and didn't make it to the Cooper or Johnson families. Her body was left there on the mountain by the men who found her because they couldn't bring her down by themselves. And it took a full another year to get an expedition to go back to find her. They had to basically extricate her out of the ice. In fact, they sawed off her left arm and left her arm uh, in the ice. Part of what we found then a couple of years ago was the camera, but also a knapsack that belonged to Janet Johnson with another roll of film and also her arm with a broken watch still attached to it. Gosh. Wasn't there a rock on Johnson's face? Yeah. So the three men that found her, I mean, another reason why they thought that this might be a crime scene was that she had a rock, uh, not a huge rock, but big enough that you you could maybe pick it up with one hand sitting on her chest. And, you know, she's in the middle of this glacier. There's no other rocks around and there's a rock on her chest. And they thought that might have been an instrument um, that could have killed her. So when they came down off the mountain and reported this and showed everybody the pictures, which ran in the local newspapers, people said, wait a second, that does not look like somebody who died by an accident. Here we are 40-some years later, and, and people down there still believe there's something more to the story. So climate change means that these icy environments are becoming less so, and the camera is revealed, the one with her printed labels on it that indicate her address in Denver. There's film inside. And to some extent, this is the great payoff of your story in the New York Times, which is to scroll and see what she saw in her final, what, days, perhaps hours. What do the photos reveal? You know, like anybody else, I would love to have had the photos solve everything. What the photos reveal are beautiful landscapes and a few pictures of her climbing partners at various points on the mountain. We can trace her path all the way up Aconcagua from base camp to camp one and back to base camp and then up to camp one and camp two. They allow us to, beyond tracing their footsteps, see when people have splintered off. We can see at one point, three others. Then we can see two others, which means John Cooper is now left. So verified information for us. Mm-hmm. We can see the changing of the shadows, which tells us what time of day these were. The last few photos, which are are striking, beautiful landscapes from the Polish glacier that show us not only is a sun setting before the night that things got really bad, but she's obviously in good enough condition to take really beautiful photographs. They're focused. They're composed. The light is right. 
she was obviously able to take off her gloves and maneuver a camera and take nice photos in those final hours before she died. Um, what they don't show is exactly what happened to her. I would love to have seen some sort of evidence of some sort of foul play or had the last frame be of a, you know, a Yeti or something um, about to attack her that would answer all of our questions. That's not the case. So really, in some ways, it illuminates her and their journey, but does not solve what happened to her. These are color photographs. I guess my sense from seeing them is just how contemporary they feel, frankly. And I think I was just shocked that film would survive in that environment. But maybe that's the perfect environment to preserve film. We took this film and this camera to a lab in Saskatchewan, a place that is renowned for developing film that has been in some sort of distress. I mean, if you and I were to find film in an attic after 100 years or a shipwreck that had some uh, film in it or something, huh. you take it to these people. And so we took it to them and they said, yeah, because of the dry air of the Andes, that's better than humid air. Cold is better than heat. Being frozen, being entombed in ice is maybe the best possible outcome. Hmm. So in a lot of ways, we got lucky. I was thrilled Janet's photos exist. It's interesting, I think, and kind of ghostly to think these are the last things that she saw and only she saw. And now countless people can appreciate them. When I did have film cameras, I remember I would store the film in the refrigerator. So I suppose Aconcagua winds up becoming a giant version of that. And how does her family and how do Mr. Cooper's survivors, relatives, how do they feel about all of this coming back to light? Yeah, well, certainly the first phone call I made when I found out that um, we had access to Janet Johnson's camera was to her family. She had no close family other than her sister, who is in her 80s and lives in Oregon. And so I, I tracked her down and told her about this. And of course, she was shocked to know that anything um, of Janet's had been found on Aconcagua. Her only knowledge of what happened to her sister was that she fell off the mountain. That's how little information that she had gotten. Wow. And so she said, yes, you have my permission, certainly, to go develop the film. And please let me know what happened, because for 50 years... I've wondered. The Cooper family was the same. They spent more time in the 70s. Cooper's father spent more time really investigating this. But for the most part, they accepted that this was an accident that must be what happened. So I think for them, it was somewhat of a closed case. But they, too, were interested in, like, we, of course, we want to know as much as possible. Um, and they were very much in, in favor of us investigating this and trying to find out more. But I think to them, it had been more settled than it had been with Janet's sister. John Branch, is there a murderer at large? Certainly not, because everybody from this expedition has passed. Your broader question about whether or not this is potentially foul play or a murder, yeah. as some believe and suggest, I don't know. And I, I, not to cop out, but I wouldn't have written the story if I thought it was settled. I truly believe that there is not enough evidence to rule out anything. And I don't know if people are going to come out of the woodwork with more information. I'm afraid this will probably always be a mystery. I hope that people who now spread the mystery or spread the myth down in Argentina will now have at least a, a modicum of facts and certainly a sense of who these people were that they're talking about. Does it make you want to tell more stories like it? 
It has. I mean, this is a, a genre that I've kind of fallen into in the last 10 years with a few other stories, but this one is different in that it really um, dives into myth-making, and I'm fascinated by it for many reasons, but what it says about our own imaginations. When this story came out in the New York Times recently, I was surprised at how many readers want to solve the case. They were analyzing everything I laid out and then pretending that they were the investigator to say, here are my theories. It hadn't occurred to me that that's what people would do. But it does now occur to me that people today reading the story are doing the exact same thing that people in Argentina especially have been doing for 50 years. Mm -hmm. And that is taking a little bit of information and then using their imagination to fill in all the gaps. And in that way, it's fascinating to me because I think it says in, in, in many ways more about us than it ever says about Janet Johnson or John Cooper. Thank you so much for being with us, John. Thank you, Ryan. John Branch is a reporter for The New York Times. His piece, Ghosts on the Glacier, investigates the death of Denver mountaineer Janet Johnson 50 years ago on Aconcagua in South America. is Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.